0: Welcome to another sustainable wine podcast with me, Toby Webb, and joining me in today's podcast is David Harvey, who's working for Rayburn Fine Wines here in London. So welcome to the podcast, David. How are you? Very good. Thanks, Toby. So you've had a long experience with sustainability and wine, David. Um, now I've seen the timeline you've constructed of the sort of history of sustainability in wine, which is very impressive. Rayburn w- works a lot with organic and biodynamic and natural producers, but also those which are more broadly defined as more sustainable than in the past. Tell us a bit about the, the producers you work with and what are the, some of the trends and practices you're seeing at the moment from them.
1: Um, with Rayburn, um, the owners Hubert uh, and myself are both interested in extremely high quality wines but which have been achieved through more natural processes. Um, the, the the various trends in production through which took hold in the marketplace in the 90s and so-called noughties there's some pretty distasteful wines in all of the world's really famous wine regions, and we just preferred something slightly more restrained, classic, not marked by processing, new equipment, additives. Um, and so it tended to be people who were looking after the soil. Uh, and working pretty uh, pretty simply in their wineries who were responsible for what we thought of as being the world's actual greatest wines not the most famous wines, or the most pointed wines but the act- actual best wines in the glass over time in your cellar that's what counted to us so we arrived there at different paths um, to bear through travelling and tasting uh, me as a Somme in the 90s I was introduced to the wines of Jean Foyard and avant Mitra in Beaujolais in about 1996 and uh, to the wines of Nicolas Joly, who was putting sort of A4 newsletters in every box of Coulé de Cerrel. And through reading about his conversion to biodynamics and through tasting the low sulfite, new natural Beaujolais output, you know, I got hooked into the ideas of this and that really changed my path in wine over the following 20 years.
0: So let's talk about the evolution of thinking in natural wine, right? Because no other subject in wine attracts as much opprobrium and divisive opinion is natural wine—it's a bit like talking about Donald Trump, is yeah. People are on one side or the other. Um, but you've—you know—you've had an evolution through. You've been following it for a long time. Where are you now? Because we were discussing earlier. There's a sort of—you know—there's still some hardcore dogmatists who insist on, you know, absolutely zero intervention. But then now it's perhaps changing a bit. Talk yeah. us through that.
1: Well, in terms of in terms of processing grapes, less is more. However, if you go along the sort of the spectrum from chemical additive based farming and winemaking through to zero input winemaking, less is more until you get to the end of the spectrum where zero is not at all attractive. There's not one winemaker in the world who is uh, zero added sulfite environment. Who succeeds with every parcel, every grape variety, every vintage? So if you're an unsulfiting winemaker. The question is, how you're going to manage the risk and what you're going to do with the wine that isn't worthy of being bottled and sold? If you use tiny amounts of sulfites, especially early in fermentation rather than late, then you can manage risk of Brett and mousiness, which are two of the big three or four issues in in the hypernatural wine world. I still end up with relatively low amount of sulfites at bottling, which fits with the concept, but you've, you've you've managed your risk. The biggest problem with the hypernatural producers are those who add zero sulfites or add a tiny amount at bottling. Well, if you've got Mouse or Brett, you've got Mouse or Brett with sulfites on top, and that, that is just it's the, the biggest single issue in natural spectrum of wine world today is
0: Mouse. Tell us more about that. What does it do to wine?
1: it gives you a really nasty aftertaste which increases in uh, perceptibility and perception as a wine has been sitting in an open bottle uh, and as the wine sits on your palate um, so when you open a bottle of unsulfited wine or wine with very low amount of sulfites the first the first sip the first taste at a tasting or a dinner can be great but then halfway through the bottle the, the mouse flavour starts to dominate, by the end of the bottle, it's all you can taste. Uh, so it's, it's interesting, it increases with body temperature and with exposure to oxygen and exposure to, I think, an enzyme in your saliva. You can't smell it on the wine, you get it on the aftertaste. OK.
0: So moving more broadly back to sustainability in wine, um, it's an area that isn't properly defined, although there's more and more information and data on what vignoans and the rest of the value chain can do in sustainability. You spoke at our inaugural conference last November, Casting our minds back to that quite hectic and busy day, which you were involved with, what were your sort of takeaways from that conference? What did you walk away from that conference thinking that you, you know, you'd remember for a while?
1: For me, in in the last sort of twenty years, um, I've been really interested in working with producers who are predicated around not using uh, synthetic pesticides in their vineyards. That was the thing that was most important to me. So people who are in Certified organics, so-called practicing, or uncertified organics, and therefore biodynamics by extension. And from that, I got interested, obviously, in in, uh, in the writing of uh, Masanobu Fukuoka as well, who maybe wrote the best book about working without chemicals that we've seen yet, anyway. And um, that was my focus because, for me, this the the visible effects on the land and on vineyard workers' health, uh, and on the on the the farming environment of intense pesticide use is really bad and so we know a lot now about what pesticides do to people and uh, the idea that there's pesticide residues in your finished wine is a turnoff to me. So for the quality of the wine and for the health of the landscape, for me it was all about organics and biodynamics, right? And people who were what we used to call sustainable in wine was people who were using less chemicals but not no chemicals. So what the French called lute raisonnée became called sustainable agriculture in English. Now, what we now, and this is something that you know I picked up from conference, was that what we're talking about is the sustainability uh, topic or movement now is about all the impact of all the activities involved in uh, farming, transforming and uh, marketing, delivering a product. So that's plastic capsules, that's closures, that's glass, that's uh, carbon footprint that's uh, yes, partly pesticides, but it's the everythingness of it. It's where you get your energy from, it's how much water you use to make a bottle of wine. And the average amount of water used to make a bottle of wine is you know hundreds of liters of water to make one bottle of wine as an industry average figure. It's absolutely crazy.
0: Yes, so, particularly <clears throat> if you consider that in the beer industry, they've got it down to in some cases. Less than two and a half liters per liter of beer. I mean, I think that's the sort of world class standard is around that level. Yeah. So wine's got a long way to go on that front.
1: Yeah, and so that was my take. My overall takeaway from the conference was that I need a bit more time to think about all the all the other forms of impact that we have. So, what are, what are, what's current practice? What are the pluses and minuses of it? What's best? Pra- what does best practice look like whether you're talking about bulk wine or whether you're talking about fine wine to be aged for 20 years in a cellar before you touch it what are the options, what's best practice what do we need to do to get the marketplace ready for what the future of wine looks like and how do we get producers on side with that as well because these a lot of, a lot of the change that's going to happen in this is not going to be led by producers it's going to be led by the marketplace, by critics by the marketplace yeah. saying to producers, no, we want better, we want cleaner, we want lower impact we want to be on message because
0: because it all has an impact, right? Absolutely, well let's talk about that demand side because that's <laughs> that's really important everybody talks about consumers driving sustainability which I, I don't think is the case personally, I think it's more that they are acquiescing to it and they want it but what's really driving it is the the rest of the value chain that's making carbon strategies and, and saying that we need to cut our footprint and thinking about what they're doing. What are your views on this? I mean, we're doing a conference at the end of November um, on the future of wine. This is going to be a big, big part of the agenda. Is it consumers, or is it more the the rest of the trade that's going to drive this?
1: I think some people in the <coughs> sorry, some people in the trade might be getting involved in this. I think critics, whether wine critics or sustainability critics, will have a big part to play. Um, certainly, if there's any scandals about pesticide use, about carbon footprint, about CO2 emissions during fermentation, then that kind of thing, that kind of almost necessary evil of a scandal can be the thing that gets people to kind of wake up and realize, ooh, we've been doing it wrong for a very long time, we need to change. You're probably right that individual consumers aren't going to change things unless they're informed about about what the impact of the, the, the past choices is.
0: Well, that's the argument, isn't it? That all those individual consumers, if I'm wrong, and I hope I am, could go online and make a fuss, and you don't need that many of them to get the attention of winemakers and wine brands and others. So I guess it, it is part of a, a sort of package, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, let's come back to um, this idea of, of packaging and distribution. You know, I've seen some stats that, you know, 45% of a carbon footprint of wine can be in the bottle and we talked earlier before we turned the tape on about lack of recycling facilities. Is that misunderstood by a lot of the industry just how challenging environmentally wine bottles actually are these days?
1: It's kind of amazing because the wine bottle as we know it is a couple of hundred years old and the the sort of reinvention of high quality blown glass and uh, machine-punched corks that fill the neck of the bottle to make a good seal. In the last, So in the last 200, max 300 years, we've had the invention of fine wine that can be bottled and drunk over years in the future, right? Whereas pre-300 years ago, all wine was known to have a lifespan of 6, 12, 15, 24 months and that was it, game over. Mm because of lack of systematic use of sulfites and lack of good bottling uh, possibilities. So we know that glass is the ultimate hygienic container and we've got, we've got closures, whether natural cork or, or synthetics or agglomerates, that can really, really perfectly seal wine in with no failure rate in the case of um, agglomerates and synthetics. <clears throat> so that's brilliant for wine that you're going to age because it improves over time. But the 90... And, so, and we're now in a 21 billion units of wine, um, we're more or less right, per year, sealed uh, sealed at some point uh, under under some kind of closure. But let's say 80-90% of wine isn't aged more than 6 or 12 months, I wouldn't have thought. I don't know the stats on that. But I doubt a very, very tiny, certainly less than 10% of all wine, is aged more than a year or two. So why are we using heavy, heavy to transport, uh, uh, high energy uh, to create glass moving around the place uh, when we could be refilling in country, recycling in country, re, you know, reusing glass bottles or other types of bottles.
0: Or using other forms of wine distribution, you know, kegs, taps, etc. I remember going to a supermarket in Nice and looking for the cheapest bottle of wine I could find that was drinkable a few years ago. And and it was a Corsican red, and it was three and a half euros. Yeah. And I was thinking, how much of this is, how much of that is the cost of the bottle? Yeah. You know, um, that clearly seems unsustainable if we're going to be taking climate change seriously. Yeah. But that's a big change for a lot of producers, isn't it? I mean, how are they going to get their wine to market? Because they're used to bottling it themselves and then selling it. A lot of them.
1: Yeah, and there are wine shops I go to in Spain where you can buy, you know, liters. You take along your own plastic mineral water bottle or or coke bottle and get it refilled in uh, get it refilled in the wine shop from a barrel marked Terra Alta or marked Camp de Tarragona uh, or marked uh, uh, Monsant and you pay 150, to 3 euros a litre of wine but as we talked about earlier there's the question of how well is your bottle rinsed out what are the health risks of of uh, self-washing wine vessels.
0: Yeah, uh, I don't want to drink any wine out of a used Coke bottle, really.
1: <laughs> but I have to say, I prefer, so that simple country wine moved in bulk from a winery to a big barrel in a in a shop. Yeah. Your only question is, really, is what are the sulfite levels in the barrel and is the wine going to spoil in yeah. barrel as, as they're topping up bottles day by yeah. day.
0: And you can sell the customers a reusable cup. I mean, we've all got our reusable coffee cups now. Right? Yeah. So.
1: Um, but i do pref- i ha- place a high value on simple honest wine done well rather than wine from ultimate qual- quant- uh, quality vineyards which are where the potential of the vineyard is messed up by the winemaker's choices by the uh, by the uh, farming choices by the cellar practices and so for me a local simple wine for 2 euros a liter in uh, in uh, in uh, say barcelona I value, I think it's a better wine than a €100 bottle of Priorat, which is over-oaked.
0: Yes, well there's a lot of that around. So final question, you're walking into a UK supermarket, let's say in 10 years time, people are talking about twenty, thirty as a a major looming deadline for all things climate and sustainability related. You're walking into a Sainsbury's in 10 years time, how are you buying a bottle of wine that would have sold for under £10?
1: The answer is I don't know. (laughs) A part, well, and it's, it's a difficult problem. for me because because I don't, at the moment, we, uh, I don't supply the, the large UK supermarkets, yeah. no, no, so I'm not used that. to their buying
0: practices from the inside. I'm just trying to think about yeah. what it looks like for the consumer, really. Um, yeah. Because so there are limits to how many things you can ask a consumer to bring to a supermarket to refill, right? Yeah. I mean, if if why, then why not detergent? You know, I mean. Yeah.
1: So there's been, <clears throat> there's like an anti-plastic sentiment which is why people in in the industry, and we talked about at conference, people in the industry are saying any solution for the future involving plastics is maybe toxic, because plastics are seen as being the evil. Mm. So other commentators in the press have said, well, actually we need to just make thicker, more durable plastics that you can reuse thousands of times, value them, charge heavily for them, uh, make sure they're easy to clean and to reuse. And uh, if you have like a stackable thing of plastic containers, you can take those to refill with your with your oats or your wine. Yeah. Then that's one way to look at it. Um, and that puts the emphasis onto the customer rather than onto the retailer as such. It does. But, um, you know, we know already that 45, an amazing figure, 45% of wine sold in the UK is bottled in the UK. Yeah. Well, that could be 80%, that could be 90%. Yeah. And leave- the average
0: price for a bottle of wine is about £6, isn't
1: it? Yeah, so leave... You know, one could say, look, let's leave wine of certain price points or certain appellations, Barolo, Poyac. If you want to have the ultimate expression of a Poyac producer's wine or a Barolo producer's wine or a Napa Valley Cabernet, the ultimate expression will be the one that's bottled at that winery. So the winery has control, agency over the entire process. And the price point means... I mean, it'll be drunk over the next decades, but uh, you, can, you can offset the carbon of moving that glass object around the world. Yeah. It, but if, if it's wine where the average price is £6, then from what I understand, the best place to fill that wine into a plastic bottle or a plastic biodegradable pouch or a very ultra-light-weighted glass bottle is uh, as close to the consumer as possible. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is the kind of change we need to see.
0: Well, we'll see how it plays out. David, thanks very much for your time today. Um, You'll be speaking at our conference on the 26th and 27th of November in London, The Future of Wine. Listeners, I hope you can join us there and meet David and continue the conversation. Meanwhile, David, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, David.